Hello, and welcome to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. In this third of a four-part series called Vision Under the Tree, Dorje Lopan and Dr. Han Lai discusses the basics of meditation as practiced and taught by the historical Buddha. These teachings discuss citta bhavana, or the development or cultivation of the heart-mind, that is at the core of Buddha's way of meditating. Urban Dharma is a Buddhist temple in the heart of Asheville, North Carolina. We are supported by your generosity and by our online store, TibetanSpirit.com. To learn more about us, come visit our temple in person, or look us up online at UdharmaNC.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, good afternoon. Welcome back. Uh, so let's start with, um, if you have been here the last couple of times, <coughs> yeah, you will remember uh, the basic uh, kind of sitting uh, that we've been doing. Uh, but I'll still uh, go through uh, with a guided uh, meditation. Uh, so we'll start uh, in this way. Uh, so what you want to do, is um, just settle into a comfortable posture. Uh, Generally, if you are sitting on the floor, uh, you want to make sure uh, that uh, you are in the position where you're balanced. Um, In terms of the cushion, think of the cushion as not so much, uh, you know, you don't want to sit like this to the end of the cushion. If, If your back... Uh, tailbone is kind of falling off the cushion in the back uh, that's causing strain to your back this cushion should really just to be to prop up kind of your tailbone and thinking in terms of almost like a tripod so that your weight is distributed between the right left and the back Uh, so there's a lot more that can be said about positions uh, but you should just sort of find uh, a position that's comfortable and balanced. You're sitting on the chairs or sitting on the pews. Uh, you, Generally speaking, they say you want both your feet uh, to be uh, stable, flat on the ground. Uh, and then you check your back. Uh, some people find that uh, the position uh, on the pews in particular, because the way in which it kind of slants downwards towards the back, uh, it might, you know, put some stress yeah, on your back. Uh, so you might want to consider even like sitting, you know, uh, almost on the edge of the uh, pew. Again, experiment uh, and see what works for you. Uh, so then both your hands, uh, again, in uh, the same principle, you don't want them to be lopsided. So you can put them simply on your knees, uh, or you could hold them in what's known as the meditation posture. Uh, So whatever is comfortable, uh, just be relaxed. As far as your uh, eyes, uh, you can keep them closed, or you can keep them slightly open. Uh, If they are slightly open, Uh, you can let your gaze fall uh, into the space that is about two to two and a half feet in front of you. Uh, But just let the gaze kind of fall onto that space rather than focusing on a particular 
feature of what's in front of you. Simply let your eyes rest in that way. At your own pace, uh, mentally scan uh, your body uh, to see if uh, there is any kind of uh, tension uh, or extra uh, pressure uh, that is felt there. And perhaps it's because uh, you are leaning in that direction or perhaps uh, your uh, pants is a little bit kind of tight over there. So do whatever is necessary uh, to kind of relieve that stress, uh, relieve that pressure, until you find kind of an optimal uh, sitting position. So feel free to kind of move the body around. Think of the body almost like a pendulum that is swinging a little bit, moving a little bit, until it settles into a place of quiet and relaxed openness. The openness will be a lot easier if you slightly hold your shoulders to the back, almost putting a little bit of tension, at least at the beginning, that will help kind of uh, facilitate this feeling of openness. And the other aspect is to pull up your spine, almost imagining like you're going upwards into the sky. Again, at the beginning, there's some degree of tension, and then let it slowly settle back down. And remain in this space of alert openness. Feel your spine holding up heaven and earth. Feel your heart opening outwards. There is some kind of stimulus that makes you want to shift physically. It's okay to shift, but before you shift, note that stimulus. Note that thought that says, move. Note the thought that says, maybe this way is more comfortable. Maybe that way is more comfortable. Note that first. And then make the shift. If there's an itch, note that first before you scratch. 
then make a resolve, make a decision that whatever that is going to be arising, important or not, you say to it later. You're not dismissing the importance of whatever pops up, but just say later. Whether it's important or trivial, just say later. Now let your awareness spread throughout your body. Feel being in the body. Pay attention to whatever sensation that seems to be arising in any part of your body. Then direct your awareness there and gently watch that sensation. As that sensation fades, just relax your awareness again throughout your body until another sensation arises in a distinct way. Then let your awareness go there. And after a while, when the sensation Seizes, just remain and let your awareness permeate, pervade your entire body. And remain in this state of alert openness. Now pull your awareness that is pervading your entire body when you're ready at your own pace. Bring your awareness to right where breath enters your nose. And focus on the sensation of breath entering 
and exiting your body. Sometimes that sensation is obvious and coarse, and other times subtle. Just note, just pay attention. Sometimes travel with the breath into your body and let your awareness feel your lungs filling up. And the emptying of the lungs and the sensations that accompany both of those. There is really nothing to do, nothing to achieve, nothing to attain. Simply stay with the present. Simply stay with one breath. Simply stay with the inhalation. And then stay with the exhalation. Although anchoring your awareness now on your breath, you should also let awareness be present throughout the body.
an awareness of being in space. Just as your body occupies physical space, your thoughts, your feelings, your sensations are all taking place within a particular kind of space. Not physical space, but nonetheless space. And that is the space of awareness. Awareness is constantly present, but it has no content to itself. Because of that awareness, thoughts take place, feelings are felt, experiences are had, and sensations take place.
Any observations that you care to share? Deeper you go, the calmer you get. That's good. <laughs> or the sleepier. There's space over here too. <laughs> oh, the sleepier. <laughs> so last week I suggested, right, the sleepiness. Well, either that worked really well, or that was a complete failure. <laughs> Not that there is, you know, success or failure to measure with, <laughs> but either you felt that that worked really well, or you felt like, oh my gosh, I don't know what just happened. I don't have anything to say. Today. Uh huh. And why? <laughs> so, why is it seemingly sometimes easy, sometimes hard, sometimes interesting, sometimes boring? It's life. <laughs> it's life. Depends on the crisis of the day. If if there's a lot going on, it's it's harder, I think, to keep coming back if you've got something over here that keeps turning. Uh huh. Yeah. So if something else keeps coming, that's when you have to, right? You have to apply uh, those sort of instructions. That you have to experiment to gain some confidence that they work. Um, so, to, so, which is to say then that, of course, when the crisis level goes up to a certain point, that's not a good time to start learning how to use a tool. So that you prepare for rainy days, so to say, 
by familiarizing with the tools and more importantly personally gaining confidence that that tool is efficient for right doing this particular job and this other tool is especially efficient for doing this other job yeah so gaining that direct experience and confidence in some ways uh is where the real challenge is as a culture i think we are so um we we give so much weight on kind of intellectually understand understanding something and thinking okay now it will work and so i've said before that you can't think yourself to the buddha state the state of being awake and free from confusion you can't think your way there which is of course you know not to say that thinking reasoning and contemplation consideration uh, don't have uh, a role to play but they are not the answer to all of it so we are constantly hoping to find you know another set of information or knowledge that will somehow change everything for us but but that's usually not where the problem is the problem is that we don't have time or we think we don't have time or we don't want to or we get distracted right from learning the different tools and applying them and gaining some personal confidence that that tool works so one of the tools is for example as simple as later right we talked about that a little bit later kind of saying kind of firmly but without anger without annoyance but with some resolve some firmness to whatever it is you say okay now i'm going to sit for 10 minutes so whatever important things that i need to attend to whatever important great ideas that is going to pop up now uh, that one idea that is going to get everybody in this room to volunteer uh, for you know Judy's project you know that idea might pop up later or some mathematical equation that you have been working with that pops up later Yeah or the thought going to oh dinner would be really good if i make this or that later because 
This is your 10 minutes. Yeah, so, so, so that's a tool that you have to apply and just say later. As long as you're applying those tools, it doesn't matter. See, here, here is where we, we kind of get trapped or confused. We think that, hey, if I apply the tools, last week when I applied this particular tool, it worked really well. And it was easy to be blissful. Today, I applied the tools. It seemed like an uphill battle. And you think, oh, today's sit is not as good as last week's sit. There is where we have been tricked. Because what it is, is like, ah, I'm learning. Another way in which this tool can operate, and I need to, you know, like it's sort of like you're going through different terrains, this mental terrain, and learning how well the tool works when. And so, not, you know, like I said, we should not think, bring in terms like, you know, think in terms of like failures and successes. But nonetheless, that's, that's always back there, right? Culturally, <laughs> failure or success, you know, success getting a medal. Now, of course, you know, let's just give everyone a medal. And uh, you know, because the medal makers, you know, make money. <laughs> that's the bottom line, it seems, you know then you feel like you're also a good person if you gave everyone a medal. But, you know, the, the, the key thing is to apply the tools. Uh, because in doing that, you begin to gain familiarity with the tools, and then you gain confidence. And that confidence is really important. Yeah, otherwise, all of this is just like fancy rumors. I mean, you know how many pages of fancy rumors you have already accumulated. Yeah, perhaps you even have a very sophisticated filing system, uh, all filed nicely away. Uh, and you say, I know. When I need that, I know exactly where to find it. But then, even if you succeed in finding it, you don't know what to do with it. So the important thing of, uh, kind of, in terms of establishing a habit of paying attention to our inner lives, of training the mind. Chitta Bhavana, the development of the mind, uh, is that 
the first thing is that we need to put aside uh, all those kind of uh, TV uh, ideas of what meditation is. Uh, misty, right? Put that aside. Uh, very calm, very peaceful. Sometimes that turns up. Sometimes that does not turn up. And then keep applying the different tools. That sounds more like kind of science. Yeah. Something spiritual. How so? We're just being able to apply you know, a certain regime, certain... ways of looking at things which you know I don't object to it's definitely more scientific than you know most religions you're adoring some something uh-huh. praising something yeah I think you know as, as uh, we were Talking, uh, discussing last two weeks you know, with this core kind of vision, core method. Uh, I don't know if uh, definitely uh, isn't religious the way we normally think of religion, with a caveat that religion department people don't get to join this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ordinary people's <laughs> conception of religion, <laughs> it doesn't quite resemble that. And sometimes I even say it doesn't even quite resemble what ordinary people talk about as spiritual either. Because spiritual pertains to the spirit, and the spirit is really mysterious. <laughs> right? Spirit is really kind of. You can't put your hands on it. Not that you can put your hands on this, right? But actually, the Buddha n- never really found much value in using the language of spirit. His contemporaries of the same ilk, which some people thought they were just homeless bums, <laughs> fancy word for ascetics, uh, or ascetics are the fancy words for homeless bums. <laughs> Um, uh, many of them found uh, the language of spirit uh, and, and, and all that aggregates around this language of spirit uh, to be useful. Uh, contrary to that position, the Buddha avoided the language of spirit. And the language of spirit in the Buddha's own time is the Sanskrit word Atman sort of like the divine self the indwelling self all of that the Buddha actually didn't care for that set of vocabularies and all the issues that come surrounding that particular uh, vocabulary and the commitments that come with that actually uh, 
Instead, he said, what we can account for when you look at, when you ask, what the heck is this? Right? What's going on here? Well, he say, he said, I think we can all in this room agree there are physical processes going on, there are mental emotional processes going on. And to him, that's sufficient. So he never went beyond the language of what can so in a way you could say he was sort of an empiricist and said what can you empirically kind of access well bodily processes physical processes and mental emotional processes of the two he gave more attention to mental emotional processes Uh, so the Buddhist physical sciences didn't really develop the way in which Western physical sciences kind of developed. But mental, emotional, that area, the, the Buddhist inner sciences kind of flourished. And, and interestingly, by kind of leaving aside the language of spirit, because spirit, uh, the language of spirit is involves uh, kind of very too obscure. <laughs> Maybe requires uh, a level of faith, uh, a certain set of commitments that the Buddha found to be uh, not helpful uh, in his own experience. And of course, you know, this is just being offered to you, not so much to say, therefore, this is the truth with a capital T. <laughs> and anything that doesn't agree with it, you know, obviously, hint, hint, is wrong. <laughs> but I think um, if we pay attention to how each tradition kind of presents its own kind of insight into the human experience, uh, we can gain a lot from all the various traditions. Especially now we live in a world where you know, we are not separated you know, physically and information is not separated from valley to valley and village to village. right? Uh, so there is a variety of human experiences that I think we could learn from and uh, see what is useful and helpful uh, to uh, ourselves. So one of the things about the Buddha's approach is that, again, uh, some of you might be surprised to hear this, but I think many of you have already heard me say this. I would even argue that uh, Buddha's core vision is only peripherally, secondarily concerned with uh, kind of notions of capital T truths. 
the truth out there that you can have to kind of navigate your way until you find it. But rather, what he taught are more important to pay attention. Not to say that, you know, I think the Buddha did have, right, this capital T truth that he realized. But that's not as important to spend time pondering upon. More important is the strategies that he gave, the tools that he gave for us to work with those tools. And by working with those tools, if we come face to face with the same capital T truth that he came face to face with, then good for you. Yeah, but it doesn't entail right, signing up to that truth claim in ways that I think maybe other religious traditions might kind of require that. I don't know. Uh, it's also based on your experience of that. Uh, but in this case, I think it's better to kind of approach what the Buddha taught uh, as these strategies. So among these strategies, what I want to introduce today is what Buddhists call um, the three characteristics of uh, existence as we, as we know it. Existence as we know it, meaning uh, kind of confused existence, right? Uh, an existence where uh, we are constantly in a state of becoming. And we, we, we always feel like we have not yet arrived. And this becoming, this constant process of becoming, is driven by this thirst. By this thirst, by, by this force that says, you know, do something, be something, be something, be something. Yeah, then that turns into bumper stickers, right? I would rather be, I would rather be, I would rather be, and so on and so forth. Um, so this kind of existence, yeah, which is to varying degrees, we, we kind of live like that. Some days stronger than other days. But it's always underlying. When we don't have something, we want something. When we have something, we want something else. So why go to you know a place where there's only you know three things available for you to eat when you can go to one with forty three? Choices good. So, this constant way of being in the world that is not really being in the world, but driven by this endless, tiresome process of becoming. And so that's 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 really what Buddhists mean. What the Buddha meant by when he says, if you're familiar with these words, samsara, the cycle, 
this cycle that is like a dog chasing its own tail that can never quite get it. So the cycle. So there are three characteristics to this cycle. The first one is uh, the Indian word dukkha. Dukkha. Dukkha is often translated as suffering. Uh, but it has a range of meanings uh, that is unsatisfactory, uh, uh, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, disease, and stress. Stress, trauma, that whole gamut of feelings. The etymology of this, or uh, of dukkha, ka is space. Duk is uh, uh, like unhappy. To be in an unhappy space. To occupy an uncomfortable space. That's dukkha. So, first characteristic of this constant process of becoming is that it's dukkha. Second is inconstancy or impermanence or change. All composite things, all composite phenomena is inconstant. Unstable, unreliable, unpredictable, unsure, not certain. And the third is that all of these, and in a way, most important, or the, actually the good news, is that all experiences is not self. Not self. Could you explain that? Sure. All experiences is not self. All experiences is not self. Everything that we experience is not self. So we'll get to that. On the surface, these three characteristics seem rather, how would you say? Unrelated. Unrelated. Or what is the impression, you know, when you say these three things? Stress, inconstant, not self. (laughs) It's like, right? Not words that you mm, hear a lot at parties. So on the surface level, it, it seems like, you know, oh, that is just so unpleasant. Why do you have to talk about these things? But I actually said that uh, if we begin to notice uh, all the experiences that we're having, from moment to moment, we can actually see 
and use these three and see these three characteristics clearly. And, and, and interestingly, he says, when you see these three characteristics clearly, you become free. Accept them. Oh, well, first have to see them. Right? First have to, have to train how to even recognize them. Yes, then of course, you know. Uh, acceptance in a way, but, but not like, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, especially like in religious matters, right? When we think about acceptance, I don't know, we have an image of like. <laughs> not like giving up. But here, it says that if you. If you actually pay skillful attention to how all our experiences is characterized by one or a combination of these three, when you actually have the ability to see that, you become free. So of the three, perhaps the hardest is the first one. What do you mean if I can see that it's stressful, then I become free? You're like, you know, I see that all the time. <laughs> I'm nowhere close to, you know, being relieved of stress. You know, right? Again, culturally, we love stress. Because it means we are hard-working Americans when we are stressed. If you don't look like you're stressed, maybe they won't tenure you. If you don't look like you're stressed, maybe they won't promote you. If you don't look like you're stressed, maybe the donations will not come. <laughs> so you have to look like you're stressed. And you're like, you know. And so what do you mean? Uh, Buddha says, uh, if you understand uh, that all your experiences, to varying degrees, is characterized by dukkha. Hmm? Stuck in unhappy space. It's an unhappy place, uncomfortable place. So how can that ever be liberating? How can that be liberating? Can you think of how that might be liberating? Because you don't waste your time pursuing solutions. Yeah, you, you don't. So one, one, one consequence of that is you don't fight right? hopeless fights. Yeah? You're like, well, it's, 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 it's what's happening now. Pain. And uh, Especially, you know, in the times that we live in, I don't need, like, like it's not my job here to teach you what to do to overcome that pain. Because there are a lot of people with a lot of interests out there to sell you something to overcome that pain. So we're quite equipped in dealing with that. 
But where this can help is to say, in the midst of you trying to do whatever it is to overcome whatever pain you're feeling, it is also strategically intelligent to understand that pain is a fact of having a body. You know, whether it's a t- you know, intelligent design or unintelligent design, it's, it's part of this system. Uh, it's only when we think right, that everything right, has to be satisfying, pleasing, pleasant, theme song is playing, Everything I do has to be meaningful. Then we cannot accept. We we we, we cannot because we have we have this other expectation. And definitely, you can walk into a bookstore. There's at least one shelf of books that they're trying to sell you that says, "Oh yeah, you can be happy at all times." But you can. Hmm? You can be at all times. Yeah. Depends on what you think. And and this happiness that we're talking about here accepts dukkha as part of that. Which is how do you find happiness when dukkha turns up? It's easy to have happiness when dukkha is not in the picture. Or maybe not so much happiness, but freedom. That's, that's the predominant, actually. Of course, happiness is in the Buddhist you know, kind of promise of when you do the following, you'll be happy. But more fundamental than this notion of happiness is the notion of freedom. like emergency workers mm-hmm. and how like they're used to seeing suffering all the time and mm-hmm. they do it every day and they're not freaking out if they're good at their jobs like like that they've accepted that what happened is the person got shot and now we have to do the things mm-hmm. that revolve around yes. that and they're not just like putting all their attention on that person shouldn't have been shot that person shouldn't have been shot that yes. shouldn't have been shot yes. the way that us who are less used to seeing suffering sure totally fixate on like that it shouldn't be like this yes the the shock of like how how could this happen yeah or like saying no to the present right saying no to the present and so when when we kind of understand dukkha is part of this package deal then we won't be dragged around by the experience of dukkha there is some space. There is a buffer, so to say. So it's a noble, it's, it's, it's a good strategy to kind of say, yeah, this is what's happening. You know? This is what's happening. 
And in a way, actually, it, it, then from there, it, it goes more. The Buddha has more to say. He says, but this experience of Dukkha is to a large degree tied to how rigid we are committed to a set of ideas about I, me, mine. And that dukkha turns up because we have created the causes for experiencing dukkha. So this is where we are talking about sort of this understanding of karma, of cause and effect. Understanding that whatever we experience is the ripening of past Actions and actions outside of ourselves too, like other people's actions, the humanity's actions. Um, in in the conventional kind of Buddhist view, it's is actions of previous lifetimes, but it's not in the sense of like. Uh, Therefore, you deserve it. You know, good or bad, you know, you deserve it. But rather with an understanding that whatever happens now, there is some degree of that is within a set of decisions that you made consciously now. But but it's not completely free because there are things that are kind of conditioned and shaped by events that happened like so long ago. So that even as you try very hard right now and you say, I don't want this, it, it will still happen. But when it happens, having a view of karma kind of helps us to stop beating ourselves further. To just say, this is, this is past stuff that is ripening now. Then again, it gives some kind of you know, freedom. So I think the equivalent would be something like, you know, if, if thinking in terms of multiple past lifetimes is kind of hard, you could think of it in terms of like, well, I don't know why, but circumstances are such that it has happened here, huh? that there's a complex, you know, like involving other people, other things, other situations. Um... But the, the, in, in both cases, if we skillfully use it and see, that's, that's, that's the bottom line. It's like, how do we skillfully use, right, these tools? And so, um, in this course, like, I, I want to emphasize this, like, it's, it's more important to develop a particular attitude rather than to learn Huh? techniques or, or one technique and say, you know, I'm going to stick to that. But first to develop a particular attitude to all of these techniques, to all of these tools, then to apply the tools. Your first, so like I said, first is to note Dukkha. 
Because in a way of the three characteristics, the most obvious one is dukkha. Unsatisfactoriness or stress. And you don't stop there. Because once you know dukkha, right, then oftentimes when we experience dukkha, we think that it's forever. We think it's forever. That's when the next characteristic, which is more subtle, that we need to train to kind of understand. Inconstant. Uncertain. Unreliable. You just don't know. So you also train to see inconstancy. So even in the midst of like a very painful kind of emotional experience, if you pay, you know, very close attention, you'll see that there are gaps. There are gaps between those feelings. It's just that when you don't have the ability to 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 kind of look closer, you get overwhelmed by the intensity of that experience. And then you think there is no gap. But the gap is there. And the gap is what I was talking about. Just as your body occupies this physical space, your mental, emotional experiences take place within an inner space that we call awareness. And that awareness has no content. It's, it's a quality of mind. The ability to know. The one who knows. So when we train and look at, you know, so whenever ex- dukkha arises in our experience, then we should be able to see that that experience of dukkha is inconstant. And when we're able to see that inconstancy, then a very natural kind of um, understanding arises that, that you could, you know, we, we give the phrase, not self. That means there is no unchanging self that is experiencing this. See, often it's when a very strong emotion, a very strong experience arises that we feel the strongest kind of pain or happiness. Which is not to deny that during that t- those times, this is very strong. But it's not constant. So I've said, you know, Buddha doesn't teach that there's no self. Buddha says that this thing that we call self is constantly making itself. 
So when we know that it's inconstant, not just intellectually know, but by training the mind, and actually directly seeing that it is dukkha, if it is dukkha, it is inconstant, it is not self. Yes? Did, did, did Buddha come up with that concept from older Hindu ideas about the concept of the I self or like some of the. In contrast to it. In, in contrast. Yeah. Because it's, the word is actually anatman. Atman is like that self. And the Buddha almost, you could say, purposely uh, use anatman. There they're talking about there is no kind of ego. But, but in their system, instead of ego, there is divine self. Yeah. So, so, so what has been contrasted in those systems are these two. So, so go, go kind of tune into your divine self, right? And let go of the false self. And, and there's a lot of power in, 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 in the practice grounded in that. In this system, all it's saying is, with regards to everything, see how it's not self. Then you might want to go, and so what about the self? <laughs> Buddha says, I have nothing to say about that. The process of elimination. Yeah, he says, I have nothing to say about that. I mean, like, if you figure out all the things that are not you, the only thing that's left is... Freedom, he says. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he says you become free. I have a question. Yes. Why is freedom not inconstant, or is it? Uh, This freedom is inconstant, yes. So you... Meaning you get glimpses of it, and it goes away, or... Yes. And it's all momentary. It's all momentary. Yeah, they say even enlightenment is momentary. You have to work at it. Yeah, right now you have to work at it. But there is a state of, of, of freedom, right? Where, where the causes of bondage are no longer there. So to that degree, we can say that's constant. But of course, on this side of confusion, whatever we say is all just whatever we say. Yeah. So again, kind of uh, 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 um, almost stubbornly refusing to talk about kind of like the final state, yeah? like by elimination, so to say. And so, so I think the Buddhist tradition is distrustful of kind of saying what the result is. Because it's worried that that then becomes another way for us to hang our confusion on. So so later later Buddhist traditions would use words like Buddha nature, this and that. 
But the original kind of vision, I would say, is such that it says, you know, that which is real is real. And, and while we are on this side of confusion, whatever we say is necessarily within our realm of dualistic, you know, this, that, here, there. And so there's no need. But in the, even in the early texts, you have things, expressions like uh, the deathless state. Buddha talked about the deathless state. The state beyond conditions. The state which is unborn. The, that state which is unproduced. The state which is unconditioned. He says, you can reach that. You can reach that. And you reach that by training in recognizing these. You begin by recognizing things that you can recognize. Dukkha, inconstancy, and not-self. So those three things is what Dharma is. Dharma is a loaded term in Indian vocabulary. In this case, you could say the teachings of the Buddha is Dharma. But Dharma quite literally also means the truth, reality. Now, what is it that recognizes the Dharma? Awareness. Awareness. The one who knows. That which knows. And that which knows, another word for that is? Buddha. And so we have this phrase, Buddha Dharma. So it's the Buddha that realizes the Dharma. Not you, not me. You Notions of you and me are necessarily part of the side of confusion. So most of the, yeah, coming back to yeah, the, the kind of the, the practice itself, what we are practicing is at the beginning uh, learning how to kind of bring attention, kind of developing the skill of non-distraction. We need to develop the skills for non-distraction. To be able to abide, to let the mind abide in one place. And to develop the ability to kind of say, okay, now, just sit quietly here. 
or developing the ability effectively to say later. And, and all of that going, okay, later. And as you develop that ability to abide as you wish, then you can direct that to, that, that attention can be directed to recognizing dukkha. And once dukkha is recognized, to also see that that's inconstant. And that that's inconstant, and that's not self. Not me, not mine. Let's take a few minutes break. And then when we come back, we'll do more of the guided sitting. Well, before the question from there, questions here. <laughs> yes. Uh huh. Sure. I'm meditating at home. I find that I can't turn my mind off at all very easily. Like it's what do you mean by turning it off? Well, I'm always like later, later, later. You know, the thoughts are always coming in. So constantly saying later. But when I'm here, I can't stay awake. Uh huh. And it just seems like <laughs> like two extremes. You know, two extreme experiences. Um, I think um, when we're starting this um, it's helpful um, to again kind of find uh, more optimal um kind of more optimal conditions in which to do the practice. So at home, it might be that uh, you say, I'm now walking into this room, and this is the room where I meditate. Or I'm now seated in this square in the house. And always go back to the same place. Um... It's important, the, the, the point about later is not to just kind of say later, later, but rather, you know, when you walk into that space, that determination, you know, and say, no, I'm just not going to. I mean, we do that all the time, right? You're like, now I'm at work, you know. Well, you know, now I'm at work, you know, but... Uh, I've got to refresh my screen to see what's going on on Facebook, right, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I mean, because we've been habitualized to, you know, just constantly multitasking. Because culturally, this is good. This shows that you're really efficient. In fact, they put this with a thousand arms. It's multitasking. 
but not our kind of multitasking. You know, we become so scattered. So first of all, um, maybe it's just our expression, but, but even the expression, I think there's something there. So first of all, don't think of it as turning off. Think of it as directing traffic. Traffic is going to be the same. But you're directing traffic. So instead of traffic going elsewhere, for now you say traffic is going to be marshaled in the direction of, you know, depending on, you know, how long you have done this practice, you know, it could just simply be traffic is now being directed to, uh, of, you know, this, this feeling of having a body. So direct all traffic to sensations of the body. So find something that would attract your attention to the set of work that you know you want to do. If that's helpful. For some people, thinking of meditation as work is not helpful at all. Then, that 10 minutes is about, now it's unplugging time. It's doing nothing time. And at the very least, I can give myself 10 minutes a day of doing nothing. Nothing whatsoever. Then you might find that awareness kind of gathers. It's, it's, it varies. Yeah, it varies. Would you recommend doing something with like like you put the thing on your head, but I could imagine still falling asleep with that on my head and like having it fall into my lap. Like doing something with an unusual sensation, like holding sand between your hands. Something, you know, yeah, you explore to see, you know, and and and, and the idea is of course after a while, uh, you don't need, you know, that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's a bowl of water on your head. Boiling the water. A book, or you know. Now, the paying attention to dukkha. Uh, so one thing I should also say is that when you pay attention to dukkha, then when you become sensitized to dukkha, then you also understand that the, 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 the strength of that feeling of dukkha is strongest when you hold tightest to it. So one of the purposes of noting dukkha is to, to then say, let go. To let go. To release. So you let go. And then sometimes you're noting inconstancy. And inconstancy there uh, includes how the mind is constantly moving. 
to train to see the mind moving itself. So, so that's why I've said before, you, you can't really fail if you are skillful in approaching whatever situation uh, your mind wants to play with you. You're like, okay, that's fine. Now is the time we play. Let's see what you're up to today. Uh, it says, sleepy, sleepy, sleepy. Right? Then you apply that particular tool. And you don't know how it's going to work, actually, whether you're going to fall asleep or not. You actually don't. Do it. Just do it. Too often we, we don't do it. We think, we, we think about it. Thinking about it and doing it are different. We just do it. Not think about it. Don't think too much about it. Just do it. I know it sounds like a, a you know, this. <laughs> Just, no, it sounds like a, this cycle, you know, like chasing itself, you know. But really, don't think about it. So you say, I, so I say something like, you know, watch awareness. And then, you know, you're like, what does that mean? No. Just don't. That's thinking about it. Because awareness, you know, is knowing. And so you watch. You say, what am I watching? Then the next moment, right? Remember that kind of instruction. Watch your awareness. See if you can see it. Admittedly, that's not so easy. Right? To, we can see the activities of the heart but we cannot see the heart so easily. But if you begin by watching the activities of the heart, after a while, you can trace back to the origins of those activities, which is the heart. Awareness. Knowing. So now let's try this. Uh, so again, you know, find a, a, a position yeah, that's comfortable. And part of the position of being comfortable is also a position that allows you to be alert. So don't be too comfortable. <laughs> because too comfortable, then the, dis- the, 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 the sleepiness comes in. Yeah? So if you sit in the particular spot, it's not helping move to another spot. That spot doesn't help, move to another spot. That spot doesn't help, stand up. Standing up doesn't help, walk backwards. You you do whatever. These are all different tools. So now just sit in a comfortable position or stand if you feel that need. Just stand. So place your body in a comfortable position. Elongate your spine.
Make sure your shoulders are open. Then breathe in and out a few times deliberately. This exercise here, I want you to take one of these spaces and bring your awareness to either the physical space that your body is placed in, or the space in which sound is occurring. So you might hear the sound of the air condition. You might hear the sound of my voice. You might hear the sound of your heart beating. Whatever sound that you hear, listen to that space where sound is occurring and see if you can hear anything. So that's a much subtler object. A grosser object would be be aware of the space that your body is placed in. Then even more subtle than that space in which sound is occurring is the space in between thoughts. Or the space in between an inhalation and an exhalation. So now this exercise is an exercise of noting space. If you're using physical space as your object, try to let your awareness be all around the contours of your body. And try to feel that space in between your body and space, that meeting point <clears throat> throughout your body. And then go, let your awareness go from 
your skin and out into the space that surrounds your skin. If you're using the space in which sound occurs, try to listen to that which is behind the sounds. And if you're using visual space, yet another object, then using your eyes, see if you can see space. Can space be the object of sight? Look for that space. Whether the felt sense of space, or visual space, or the space behind sounds, or the space between thoughts, Alternate your attention to looking for that space and just relaxing into that space.
all that we really need to do is just in that one moment. In every moment, you know, catch kind of that awareness. That's it. It's all momentary. There's the illusion of, you know, we have meditated five minutes, ten minutes. That's a concept. That's conceptual. And, and, and you, you, you can't really, like, you know, meditate for five minutes. You can only be present for a moment. So, even that inconstancy, that is still inconstancy. <clears throat> And it's sort of like attuning our kind of awareness so that we see the inconstancy of that. But that that very seeing is where some sort of stability is, is occurring. Kind of like the, the part that is still and the part that is moving. So... Always there's these two parts going on. The stillness and the movement. So I read that one of the last teachings that uh, this great forest master, Ajahn Chah, gave as a public teaching. Uh, he, in one, or, or the, the last kind of public teaching that he gave before he... Um, was in a coma for years, actually. Um, he used this expression of... Um, he asked this question, he said, uh, do you all know moving water? And the students, his students said, yes. Then he says, have you seen still water? And they're like, yes. He said, what about still moving waters? train that obviously it's not talking about water that our minds our awareness it's like water it's always moving to try to halt it it's futile but in the midst of all that movement there is a quiet place So another way of looking at what we're training is we're training in recognizing that quiet place. See, right now, we, we have very little ability to handle all the movements. We like certain types of movements and we don't like certain other types of movements. So we pick and choose. And the more we pick and choose, the more we become kind of ingrained in Right? Choosing one set of movements over another set of movements. So then we have to spend a lot of tr- time controlling so that it's only this type of movement and not this type of movement. And as long as that's going on, as long as that's going on, then there is no rest. The mistake is to think, how can I halt 
How can I halt the moving of this water? Then it becomes a stale pond. And it's dead. Yeah? Then it's ugh, yuck. And we're, so we're not aiming for that either. For this stale dead body of water. What we're doing is let the river continue flowing but learn to note that quiet place. So stillness and movement sound and silence. If we begin to train to note the dance, so to say, of these two. And freedom arises. And then we're not being dragged around by conditions and circumstances. Which is where dukkha arises. And to be dragged around by circumstances and conditions. So every time we find ourselves being dragged around, First we recognize, ah, being dragged around, that's dukkha. Maybe earlier I sort of confused you a little bit when I used pain. Uh, pain, you know, maybe it's not so good because, uh, yes, there is the, the, physical, the experience of physical pain. Yeah? But that's not necessarily what dukkha is talking about. Dukkha is talking about uh, the mental pain that comes as a consequence of things not being agreeable to us. So the concept that the pain is disagreeable yes. rather than the pain itself. Yes. Yeah. So another teacher, of uh, um, uh, a senior teacher in, in the mindfulness uh, movement, uh, uh, Shenzhen Yang, uh, he, he, a very helpful, he says, uh, equation, he says, uh, pain multiplied by resistance equals dukkha. Specifically, he, he, he works a lot with people with like physical pain. So in that context, he says, dukkha is not that physical pain itself. That physical pain sometimes can be fixed, sometimes cannot be fixed. But in that context, we should understand that the dukkha that Buddha is talking about is the resistance, yeah? the result of pain multiplied by resistance. Resistance in the sense of not accepting that this is what's going on. And then the concept of, you know, I do not deserve this, or I deserve this equally. Right? It's dukkha. Because you have owned it. So the strategy, the strategy of not-self. Yeah, there's pain, but nobody needs to carry it around. You can just let it be. And so he says, the, 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 the bad news is, of course, you know, the pain, you know, when the conditions are right, that happens. But then the good news is, a dukkha, can become zero if we 
reduce resistance to zero. So in other cases, you know, like we find ourselves in a circumstance that is disagreeable with us. Uh, maybe it's too hot. You know. And of course the first thing is, you know, can that be changed? Well, if that can be changed, then, you know, changed. Uh, but even that, in this tradition, uh, it says, don't, don't immediately. See, see, these habits start from the small details. It's not in the big picture. We often think that, you know, it's in the big picture, so I want to do something to change the big picture. But this big picture, the so-called big picture that we have, the big suffering and the big happiness that we have, they are composite. They are composed of smaller parts. And it's at the smaller parts where we habituate. So in terms of practice, it is as simple as, I mean, really, I mean, again, don't think about it. Oh, that's a cute idea. Do it. Which is, there's an itch. Don't scratch it yet. Pay attention to it. Or if you are the kind where everything has to be neat, your work table. Right? You see something off. Don't do anything with it yet. Just watch it. And watch your discomfort with things out of place. Watch it, watch it, watch it, and then see. Yeah, this is because then we learn the activities of the heart. And then, you know. <laughs> That's me. Yeah, so learning, you know, working with other people. Like you want to control that space, but also learning. Like no, just, just watch, watch your reaction, and then you can see how people react to your reaction, and so much of stuff kind of comes up from there. Yes. Um. This is. Uh... I'll just say, this is not me, it's another Jessica. Um, Jessica has ADHD. She's really trying hard to sit and listen and do the meditation. But she feels extremely jittery. Do do you have any advice for a young person who has been trained in inattention to begin to approach this practice? Lie down. Lie down and try to do this. These exercises might be helpful, uh, and also helpful to know this is not doing anything. This is letting it be. So even the jitteriness, don't feed it. But if you feel the jitteriness, just say, "Okay, I'm going to lie down and feel jittery." Just watch the jitteriness. Don't make any experience that arise an enemy. Then when you make them an enemy, then you have you have to go fight the enemy. 
But, see, when the enemy, when the so-called enemy comes, when experience arises, right, we are so programmed to classify friend and foe, desirable, undesirable, right? If desirable, we engage. If undesirable, we ignore. What our practice is doing here is to remain present and not label friend and foe. Initially, they're still going to arise as friend and foe. But, but you want to understand, okay, I'm, I'm labeling this as foe and I'm labeling this as friend, but they are my labels. What we're training is to remain present Sort of like, think of it as, you know, that big field. Yeah? For the cats. Back to the cats. What was the cat thing? The cat thing? The crazy cats locked in the closet? Uh, (laughs) And they're clawing, and you're in there, and you're trying to get them to settle, you know? Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Just... Because see, when, when, when something undesirable yeah, turns up, uh, we, we, we have learned you know, unskillful strategies of either ignoring it or turning it around or fight it or all of that. So what we're trying to do now is just not do anything, but not check out. Be totally present, watch it, and say, it is what it is. So, a, a word in kind of Mahayana, especially, they say suchness. Uh, those of you, if you have come across this word, this is what it means suchness. It is what it is. Such is what's going on. You know, are you going to deny it? Are you going to uh, cover over it and paint it all pink or blue or whatever color you like? Oh, all those are just, you know, adding more layers. So holding our awareness in the midst of, you know, whatever. So even sleepiness, you know, it's like recognize that and say, well, this is what's going on. So don't make it an enemy. But don't give up like this training in the sitting. Because once you give that up, then, then the situation will not change. But don't feel like you know you're, you're battling something. And and so the the point about the later is is sort of like working with the situation, right? You're not saying you're not important, you know. I I I I don't like you or I hate you. It's to prevent right a stronger response from coming up. So again, meditative traditions, there are many, many different approaches. This, this is one, uh, one approach to working with the mind that I think is quite um, beneficial for many of us.
Yeah? There are other like more traditional texts within, you know, um, the tradition that I'm familiar with. You know, that talks about you know, relating to distractions, you know, like they are robbers, and you are a guard, you know, with a sword that you strike them down each time it turns up. You know, mm-hmm. my experience, I think, for many people, that's too. It's too hard. And that works really well when you are under house arrest or monastery. Uh, then because you're 24-7, there's the whole support system, there's the whole context to kind of, you know, channel yeah, the energy and the intensity along those ways. But w- none of us live in those environments. So I don't know how effective those techniques would work. Now, all I'm saying is that you know there are many, many approaches and techniques, but this particular way of understanding the material, uh, I think, uh, would be helpful. Again, uh, we can't just talk about it; you have to do it. And part of doing it might be coming with a group of people who you sort of suspect is doing the same thing. Of course, ultimately, we don't know. <laughs> um, so every Tuesday night, 7.30 to 8.30, uh, John uh, facilitates a sitting group here. So come come to that if you can. Um, then the final of these four classes will be next Sunday, uh, 2 to 4 again. Um, then later in the fall, uh, we might continue this in another form. I think sometimes it's good to have um, to schedule day-long sittings because if you, you need to have some kind of um, experience of that. Yeah? I mean, of course, the 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 constant training uh, is daily. But from time to time to have a day-long sitting, of course, you know, with breaks and all that, uh, you, you begin to kind of focus things a little. And, and that's really helpful because it, it will help you when you are not uh, doing the day-long sitting. Uh, I think we should try to do, schedule some, you know, at least once a month, there's a day-long sitting. Uh, I think that will be helpful any questions it's him that does it Tuesday night right I think it's him (laughs) (laughs) indeed I think it's him Okay, thank you for coming. Thank you you for listening to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting our mission to foster a deeper understanding of the teachings of the Buddha, to build meaningful community, 
and to integrate contemplative teachings into everyday life. We invite you to make a donation online at udharmanc.com or make a purchase at our store, tibetanspirit.com. Thank you. May all beings benefit.